Welcome to episode 60 of Mosin at Large. I'm Jonathan Mosin. And joining me on the podcast today, a legend in his own right, working for a legendary organization that is still doing a lot. From new braille displays to updated software, Larry Scootcon's covering it all, all coming up on this episode. Mosin at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast, and I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Time now to talk to someone whose voice is very familiar, quite distinguishable. He's kind of an institution in his own right from a great American institution. What's not to like? So Larry Scootcon is with me from APH. Hi again, Larry. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you for having us on here. I've enjoyed your comments over the last couple of weeks, so it's nice to know you've discovered the podcast. I have thoroughly enjoyed the podcast. I'm still working my way backwards through all the episodes, but fascinating topics. I love hearing different people's perspective from all over the world, and it's it's just great. Keep up the good work. Well, you're not tempted to bring Blind Cool Tech back then. I, I couldn't compete with you, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those episodes are quite iconic. Every so often I see on Twitter people trying to build up their collection of old Blind Cool Tech episodes because, you know, people want the set. <laughs> do you have them all? I think I do, probably around here somewhere. Um, I I couldn't put my finger on them all right now, but I, I think I've probably got them all around. See, we should uh, make those available somewhere because that's a real cool part of podcasting history. You got in there right at the beginning. It was a wonderful golden age because people were just experimenting, really, and people <laughs> were going with these sound seeing tour concepts. And oh my gosh, yeah. and you you were prolific, prolific. Oh, I think one day I did seven of them in one day. <laughs> I couldn't get enough of it. I mean, the whole technology was fascinating. What were you recording those with, do you recall? I had a ver- various different recorders. Um, oh, 
gosh, I'm not good with names for these things, but yeah. uh, there at the using, end I was using. We were using Iteral equipment a lot of yeah, us in those I was at days. some point, yeah. And then, the uh, R1, I think. Yep. And uh, the, wasn't there one called the M-Tech or M-Audio? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, way back there. But the thing about that Iteral, it made lovely recordings and you could kind of memorize what to do with it. But, boy, it yeah. uh, it, it chewed through batteries, that thing. It did. It was it was so fascinating too. The first time I had made a really good binaural recording like that, I was uh, out on my back porch listening to it, and a car came by, and I actually stepped back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, they can be quite realistic. Let me talk about the Mantis because that was what first inspired me to contact you. There has been a lot of buzz about this device. And for those sort of joining us late to the party, the Mantis, well, why don't you tell us what the Mantis is? Because I understand this is your dream Braille device come to reality. Absolutely. The Mantis is a 40-cell Braille display with um, a QWERTY keyboard. And it has local functionality for the simple things like a note taker, a terminal app, a calendar, that kind of thing, book reader. But it's really its biggest thing is that it can connect to several devices. So you can set it up to easily switch between your, for instance, your PC and your iPhone or your Android phone. And, uh, you know, it's got, uh, local storage uh, built into it, and also uh, you can use a, an SD card or a USB drive with it. Uh uses USB-C for the power charging, so that's kind of cool, and you can actually use that for output as well. It What it doesn't do, what it's not, is a, what traditionally we're calling a full-fledged note-taker where you've got a you know, we're not running on Android or nothing. We're, we're, um, really operating system, uh, independent. So they, you know, the local functionality has its own little operating system in there, but we're not trying to, uh, compete with Google to be a better web browser or an email client or anything. We're expecting you to really use the app on your primary device and have this connected to it if you want to do a word document or browse the web or whatever but for taking notes you can switch back to it um, take them down you've always got it with you it's a good size it's really only about as wide as a 40 cell display maybe with an inch on each side and the whole rest of the device at the top is taken up with the keyboard and it's a uh, Really nice ergonomic keyboard. We went through uh, some pretty extensive field testing to to uh, sort of get what most people appreciated in one. And and this is really how the whole concept came around. And I know you've been there too, Jonathan. You know, you've got four or five devices around you, and every one of them has a different keyboard. It it just be super cool to just be able to switch between them and have a great keyboard for all of them. Yeah. What was it about the QWERTY keyboard that attracted you as opposed to a Braille one, which I suppose could potentially have had a slightly smaller form factor? In short, the ability to write documents efficiently. I think, I think most people, although we all love Braille, I think, you know, the primary input for business and education is, is a QWERTY input. And, um, you know, when you're dealing with programming or um, even trying to control the computer with, uh, 
you know, control alt F4, trying to do that in Braille, as you guys have mentioned on the show, can certainly be done, but it's something you have to learn and, and think about. So, you know, to have a QWERTY keyboard to be able to write, you know, HTML documents, programs, complex documents, mathematical documents, that was the idea uh, for really having a, a nice, efficient QWERTY keyboard. But you can also do Braille input on it. It uh, uses the standard SDF uh, method. I can kind of like perky duck. Good old pick. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so other than the QWERTY keys, obviously, what modifier keys? I'm thinking, for example, if I'm using this with JAWS, is there an insert key or I guess you could use the caps lock key as the JAWS uh, modifier? Does all that work correctly? It does, yep. There is no insert key on it. Um, the modifiers are, you know, your standard ones along with an FN key, sort of like you'd have on a laptop. I think a lot of people call this a 10 keyless. So you've got all the keys except the numeric keypad. And um, I know a lot of diehard um, screen reader users are going to say, oh, my goodness, I can't do this without the numeric keypad. But I actually switched away from over to laptop mode on my screen reader years ago. Um, just for the convenience of not having to remember two layouts when I'm using a laptop versus a, a full keyboard in it. In many cases, it makes much more sense to me anyway. So that's, um, you know, that's one of the things you'll have to get used to is, um, using the laptop layout, uh, for this with your screen reader, which I think will, you know, if you look back on it, we'll, Probably hear you say, "Oh, you did me a favor," <laughs> forcing yeah. me into that. <laughs> I, I agree. Look, I switched a long time ago as well, and apart from the convenience of just having the same commands on all devices, I just don't need to take my hands off the home row anymore. So I found it more efficient. Yeah, exactly. What about for those Mac users out there? Uh, they can also use the caps lock key, I guess, as the voiceover modifier, and that would apply to iOS as well. Um, oh, iOS, let's see. You know what? I don't think it does apply to iOS. I think you still have to use the uh, command option. Or Okay. The Windows key serves as an option key when you're in right. Mac layout? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. The manufacture of this, so you've partnered with Humanware for the manufacture. How much of this is in APH's control and what does Humanware do? How, how, does, how does the partnership kind of pan out? Well, we we really uh, asked Humanware to build this device for us, so they're our partner all the way. Um, we've asked them to to build it according to our specifications. You know, we put out uh, requests for information for uh, several vendors responded to, and Humanware really came up with the the most compelling presentation. So the partnership works in that they're a manufacturer for us as well as an international distributor. So, you know, APH is um, American-centric. We are the American printing house for the blind, after all. We, uh, we are moving towards international distribution, and this is one way to help us get our foot into that sort of arena in, in, uh, more quickly than we can do alone. One of the things I noticed when Mantis comes up is the inevitable 
scope creep that people want. This has always been a bit of a quandary for me when I was in blindness product management that once you start blurring the line between braille displays and note takers and you put a little bit into a braille display, people want more and more. Uh, Have you got any kind of framework in mind in terms of where do you expect that the Mantis functions should stop and when should I hand over to my smartphone or my PC for the rest of those functions? Or do you expect that the device will just become more capable over time? I think it'll become somewhat more capable over time. I don't think you'll ever see us trying to do a web browser or probably even an email client natively. Um, so the, the place where you switch over, I suspect, is going to be different for individual users. I think we can say pretty definitively that, yeah, if you're going to browse the web, you're going to be using your PC. If you're going to be running Microsoft Word or, or your other device, same way with Microsoft Word. I and mean, we give you a note taker that gives you plenty of room to take notes. Does do it does do line wrapping. I've been listening to your uh, oh, podcast. Good, <laughs> and uh, you know your basic functionality. I, I think if you were going to write your doctoral thesis, you would probably want to use Microsoft Word on a connect and use this as a keyboard and Braille display on another connected device. So at the moment, what I do is I take my iPhone along to a meeting and I use a Braille display with it. Occasionally, I use the scratch pad on the focus that I have, especially given the markdown that I now have access to, which is really yeah, great for me. great language. Yeah, markdown is cool. But it sounds like what I could do with the Mantis is actually really do some, some reasonable uh, level of word processing because you're doing uh, cut, copy, and paste, I imagine, with the same commands that we're all familiar with, with the control X, C, and V. And how do you then get that off the device uh, onto your PC or, or wherever you want to really do heavy lifting with it? Well, there's there's really three ways. Um, you can either store it on the SD card and transfer it over that way, um, same way with the USB. You can also uh, connect this up to uh, uh, your device and have it show up as a drive and pull it off that way. Can you have it acting as a USB braille display and a drive at the same time, or do you have to make the choice? You do have to make the choice. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I would expect. But, of course, if you've got Bluetooth in your PC, then you could choose that. You've got NFB Newsline support built into the product, and I think Bookshare too, is that right? Yes, exactly. Uh Then you've got to remember which device you have your book on. <laughs> you know, did I download it to my phone or did I download it to my Mantis? So, the, the, yeah, that's, that's one dilemma, I guess. That's true. We're not quite like Kindle yet where you can just pick up any device and be synchronized. Do you envisage supporting some of those encrypted formats? I mean, Apple Books tends to keep itself to itself, but do you think there might be ever a time when you might have Mantis reading Kindle books, for instance? I mean, that's not in the roadmap right now. I mean, obviously, we're open to anything if that's what people really want. I would suspect that the better way to do that really would be to use the Kindle on your other device and Mm. treat this as the Braille display for it. 
Yeah, so that's exactly the scope creep I'm talking about that you know people should hear. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't have text to speech on this one. I understand there's a Braille, very similar Braille device that does. That's interesting because I, there are times when I think, oh, what I really want right now is just to be read to and have that document read to me quite quickly. But um, text to speech presumably is never going to be an option because that would require hardware changes. I'm not saying we're going to do this, but there is the possibility that you could still put text to speech in it and use, um, you know, uh, USB uh, for you uh, to create a a sound device. Um, So it it would be virtual hardware, actually. Or Bluetooth, I presume, as well. Couldn't you could Uh, could have a Bluetooth audio profile? Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. Okay. But there is no speaker in the device. Is that right? Correct. There, yeah. I think what you're talking about is the Chameleon, which is yes. another Braille display that just came out at APH. That's a 20-cell one with a Braille keyboard and audio hardware with the with the sort of idea that this would be your NLS player of choice at some point. Although right now it doesn't support NLS yet, but uh, those are the kind of things where the hardware is ready to go. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the Braille arena, and that's very exciting. So I know a lot of people are just thrilled with this device, and I'm looking forward to its international distribution, which, as you say, Humanware is handling. And I understand they are quite close to doing that. So um, for those of us listening outside the U.S., that is quite imminent. Do you have any info on that? I just heard recently that it should be in a, a very soon now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Less, less than a month, I would I would guess. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. And how regularly <laughs> are you doing software updates at this point, and how do they work? How are they applied? Oh, great question. Um, well, it's only been out a few weeks, and we've already had one software update. So um, I think uh, those will still be coming as – we discover um, and you discover problems with it, and as um, we can add more functionality to it. But there's um, there's two ways to apply them. Uh, the device does have Wi-Fi uh, built into it, so if you're connected to the network, you'll get notified of a software update. And uh, like like I say, this Wi-Fi, <clears throat> we're not doing browsing. This is for pulling down books from Bookshare or Newsline or for software updates. And then the other way is that you can download them from our website, uh, put them on an SD card, and install them that way. So the Mantis sounds really like an intriguing device, but you're doing so much more. Um, what, what's the pricing on that, by the way? Twenty four ninety five US. Yeah. And so for that, you're getting 40 cells of Braille. That's a pretty aggressive price point, isn't it? Forty cells of Braille and uh, good quality software and a QWERTY keyboard. Um, so that's uh, that's a pretty sweet deal. And and you know I can't emphasize enough how important it is to keep Braille prices down. Not not everyone is in a position to have their government provided for them or their employer. You know, there's a lot of developing countries that just even even twenty four ninety five is too much for a lot of places. So it's really important to keep those prices down. And we've also done that with the Chameleon, and we uh, hope to continue doing that with uh, other new devices coming out. 
Yeah, good on you. One of the things I'm proudest of from my time in the assistive technology industry was um, being a part of two separate 40% uh, reductions in Braille display pricing. So they're cheaper than they were by quite some way, and there's some way to go. But also when you consider inflation, they really are quite a lot cheaper than they were. Uh, so we're heading in the right direction. But uh, there are lots of moving parts in Braille displays and nobody's quite cracked anything that produces Braille with the quality and ease of use as those piezoelectric cells. There's a lot of moving parts and there's a very limited market, so it makes it hard to get any kind of uh, traction for, for quantities. I think we're going to see a lot of development in this area from the game manufacturers actually you know tactile is the next frontier um so we're you know we we're already seeing a lot of these um uh augmented reality companies coming out with the uh, well you've seen the exoskeleton gloves and mm. uh, there's a company that's got thimbles that you put on each finger i don't know if that actually ever came out or not a company called tact ai so there's a lot of work being done this way, even with sound waves, uh, feeling uh, uh, focused sound. I, I saw that at uh, CES a couple of years ago, where they had a keypad from an ATM that you um, that you weren't actually touching anything, but you could feel the the sound where the buttons were. So, you know, there's uh, I think some potential for some really innovative ways to approach this outside the assistive technology market as well. APH was pretty integral in the Orbit project. How do you think that that's gone? We were uh, integral in it. In fact, uh, we were one of 11 international organizations in the Transforming Braille group. In fact, I was the president of that group, and our our mission was to cut the price of Braille to one-fifth and depending on how you look at it, we were able to accomplish that. We uh, we began, gosh, I think it was back in 2012, maybe 13, by looking at all the technology that we knew of that could make a dot go up and down and ended up selecting Orbit to manufacture this device. And and New Zealand was actually part of that group as well. We worked with uh, Neil Jarvis yes. uh, for many years there. Mm. And I, you know, I think we accomplished our mission. One of the things we found out was that it was really hard to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, the orbit reader is not for everyone, but it's a great device for its price. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Let's talk about nearby explorer. Now, nearby explorer online is, um, also getting some very positive feedback, but when nearby explorer has come up, uh, a couple of times on the podcast, people have sort of made grumbling noises because you guys got, I guess, stung by a changing um, map provider landscape. Is that right? That's what happened there? That is exactly what happened. Um, these uh, people that we were licensing our maps from and the engine to uh, run them decided that uh, the self-driving cars was a much more lucrative business. Mm. So um, let me give you sort of the big picture of what's going on with Nearby Explorer and, and GPS for, uh, at APH. You know, over the last few years, we really uh, put a lot of effort into 
uh, indoor navigation as well using uh, BLE uh, beacon technology and looking at other ways of uh, detecting and mapping indoor spaces and decided to actually form a company to focus on that. And at that time, which has been a couple of years ago now, we decided to, uh, because of the NavTech map situation, to retire the paid version of this and do an online – well, actually, online is a, a misnomer now because uh, all the maps are locally stored. At that time, we were just using, uh, like many of the other uh, sort of apps of this nature – uh, using your data to uh, get points of interest and, and addresses and so forth. But we revamped the whole thing to get feature parity with the full version and then wanted to put a version out for free and sort of wind up the whole APH side of the involvement with this. So we're turning all this over to this new company, which uh, was – Previously called Access Explorer, I think they're migrating into uh, Good Maps now. So they'll be uh, taking all this work that we've done, and they've actually already done a whole lot of other good work to extend uh, um, this model of being able to provide a free app and using another uh, source to be able to pay for it. In this case, you know they they're going to. One of the approaches is to charge for the service in the venue or even an institution if it's a whole uh, metro system or whatever. So uh, we're in that transition period. Uh, now we just released uh, what I think is probably one of the last versions of Nearby Explorer Online. Of course, if, if something horrendous comes up, we'll we'll still fix it. But we expect that Good Maps will be taking this over, and uh, they began with the development on the indoor spaces. So, as they get that perfected, they'll be uh, either taking this code that we've done on Nearby Explorer and uh, integrating it, or possibly just using it as a foundation, or or even throwing it away. I don't know yet, <laughs> and uh, expanding what they're offering. So, in the meantime, during this transition. We've got Nearby Explorer online to uh, cover the situation uh, for outdoor spaces and then good maps to uh, cover the uh, indoor spaces. And I will point out one of the good things that happened moving away from NavTech and over to OpenStreetMap is we did gain worldwide coverage. So it's it's pretty nice the way it works, too, in that you can – virtually navigate to an area and and uh, or or physically navigate and it'll actually download the you know the state map for that area or the country map whatever the case may be so i don't know if you've tried it out yet or not jonathan but you ought to give it a whirl it's um, I, I, impressive I, should. I i lead quite a boring life i when i do go to my office i get in my uber and i get out and i walk up to the fourth floor and <laughs> um so i i haven't had a look at it lately but i do have the app so can i just clarify the future then does that mean that when good maps takes over there will be a completely new app in the store or will they be updating nearby explorer online from now on undecided okay it, it could go either way so it might be that i mean is, is there a possibility that if people have become used to nearby explore and really like it that they might end up with an obsolete product at some point 
I kind of doubt that. I, I suspect that uh, Good Maps is going to be taking input from all the people that are already using this. And uh, I know they've got some people on that team that are uh, in the business and know what's going on. So I, I feel like we're all in good hands. Does that mean then that future versions, given that a new company is taking this over, they may eventually charge for an updated app? No, I think they're trying to go with the model where they're going to be uh, getting the revenue from the uh, venues that they're supporting with the indoor support. Right. So as far as I know, the plans are now to make the uh, app free for the users. There's a lot in there by Explorer, isn't there? Because you guys have been working on this for quite some time. It started off as an Android product, and it actually was a real selling point of going the Android way that – Nearby Explorer really had uh, such good quality access, particularly in the U.S. Absolutely. And in fact, we originally wrote it for the Braille Plus 18, which I don't know if you remember that device or not. Yeah. But it yeah was, uh, Mark, Mark Mulcahy was uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. a very gifted guy. Very. He's he's actually working for Amazon now. I know. Lucky Amazon, eh? Yeah. Yeah. The voice view is, is all Mark. Really? Well, that explains a lot. He's, as I say, yeah. very talented, and he's contributed so much uh, to the industry. He goes all the way back to the Blazy note-taking days. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you go all the way back to the Brow Plus for that, and now it's quite a mature product. I think what I like about it, having used it just a little bit, I'm no expert, but you've got all the turn-by-turn benefits that you might get from, say, Apple Maps and Google Maps, but you also have a lot of contextual information that only blind people really want. Yeah, exactly. And you can turn it all on and off as well. Uh, you know, one of the kind of interesting things we've added here in oh, the last year or so is uh, there's a, a couple of fields in the OpenStreetMap data called uh, description and blind description. So they're, they're sort of a way for people to write, you know, in the maps themselves, interesting things that, uh, uh, you know, about a particular point of interest. And then the other thing that's interesting about, uh, the way we've used OpenStreetMap is that you now can actually publish your points of interest to the worldwide map. I don't recommend doing it uh, unless you know what you're doing, but it's easy to do. Uh, I sort of got chastised a few uh, years ago when I was, uh, I think I was over at Costco with somebody or something, and I was looking at the map, and there was a brown suburban in there. And I said, what are people doing marking their cars? And I promptly deleted it and put that up to OpenStreetMap and Turns out that was an apartment complex called oh, <laughs> Brown Suburban. <laughs> so that's interesting. So you can add, you can delete it as a user. You're able to delete as well as add. Yes. Uh-huh. And one thing we've done a lot with it around here is changing or updating points of interest. You know, businesses will come in and out. New restaurants will take over. So you've already got your point pretty well set. You just need to update the information for it. And you can do that as a user as well. So people should check it out, I think, uh, Nearby Explorer. It's available in most of the app stores now worldwide for iOS. And uh, it's a free download. So what's not to like, really? Yep, it's pretty cool. 
Yeah. You know, one of the things, too, is you, I think I mentioned you can check and uncheck all these things about whether you want to hear the street number or the street name, uh, city, county. I like to get in an airplane and just leave the zip codes on, the zip code in the county, and have it. Uh, you can tell exactly where you are pretty much. There are so many goodies that APH uh, has worked on over the years, and one of my favorites that I often still talk up is Studio Recorder. And, in fact, we had a special episode a couple of episodes ago on podcasting, and I made the point that for basic single-track type recording and doing things like dropping in on a a recording, if you've made a mistake, you can kind of rewind and drop back in at the end of a sentence, much like a tape recorder, accessible level meters. It's all in the Studio Recorder app from APH, which I just think is a venerable, excellent piece of software. I was delighted to hear you are working on an update to that. We are. Um Yeah, I think Rob's been in touch with you and a few other people, and he's tying up the loose ends. We're uh, about to come out with a release here, I'd say, in the next next month or so. What was the attraction for doing that in an era where a lot of people are using mainstream tools that have embraced accessibility, like Audacity and uh, Reaper in particular, and Soundforge and Goldwave? You obviously perceive that there's still a need for what Studio Recorder can provide. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is uh, the the key word is spoken word content. So we are really, I, I would say, the simplest audio editing software out there. It's really like using a word processor on sound, uh, even to the point where the navigation uh, lets you move by sentences or paragraphs or uh, based on the uh, length of the pause between these utterances. So I think the the key here is power and simplicity. Um, we use this software in our studios at APH to uh, where we have a contract with the National Library Service to record digital talking books. And uh, both the narrators and the monitors uh, take advantage of these kinds of navigation capabilities and uh, quick editing capabilities with the pre-rolls and uh, you know, being able to move sample by sample. So um, we feel like there's a, you know, our, our studio is probably our best customer. So really we started and we embarked upon this update to uh, work out some issues they were having with the um, internet connection or their network connection and, and some minor dropouts. And we've gotten all that worked out and, uh, Rob, you know, we were talking about Mark. Rob is another one of these geniuses. Mm. In fact, every time I talk to Glenn Gordon, Rob and Glenn remind me so much of each other. (laughs) It's just amazing. Yes. But but Rob got in there and started uh, looking, you know, while he was back into this, because we hadn't been into this code in years, and uh, realized we could do some Pretty extensive, but, um, you know, knowing, knowing what he does to, uh, support the, uh, 64 bit, uh, file types and the float 32s and some things like that, clean up some interface issues. Uh, so 
Yeah, I was excited about this. So when I go out there with my Zoom F6 recorder, which creates 32-bit float files, which is just so cool for a blind person because it's almost impossible to over-modulate those recordings. And you can now bring them, or you will be able to bring them into Studio Recorder and edit in there. I think one of the big bonuses too, you mentioned moving through sample by sample, the way that you edit in Studio Recorder, this kind of scrubbing method. So Reaper uses a like a tape recorder. It, it literally sounds like when you're editing, you're winding a tape back and mm. forth. And there's probably half my audience saying, what's a tape? But the problem with that is that for very fine edits, what you want is a, is a constant sound to make really minute adjustments. And I'm told that Reaper has that, but it's not actually accessible yet. So in Studio Recorder, you have a mode, you hold down the uh, control key with the left and right arrow key, and you're moving through and you're hearing, it's almost like you made the word processor analogy, and I think that's a good one because it's kind of like what's under your cursor right now is what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. And um, the the fine-tuning editing that you can do is just uh, quite extraordinary. You can really get right down to the sample. I mean, it just loops the current sample, and uh, you can take out little pops very easily and uh, do some amazing editing with it, yeah. Do you know what the what the pricing will be for the Studio Recorder? Will it remain the same? I don't know yet, Jonathan. Those are some talks we're having now. Uh, stay stay tuned, and we'll uh, we'll let you know. Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd love to see the price go down uh, a little and and put this in the hands of more blind people. But um, you you got to recoup your costs as well. So I understand that dilemma. Yeah, oh. it's a tough one in a small market. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> what else is happening at APH that um, that I might not have covered that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, I don't know if you've talked about uh, Code Jumper very briefly, but tell us about that. Sure, yeah, Code Jumper is a a project uh, that's a physical programming language designed to. Uh, introduce young students to the concepts it takes uh, to be able to create uh, a program without having to know how to deal with a screen reader and know how to uh, work a, you know, a computer like we have to as screen reader mm. users. <laughs> so the idea is you just plug these modules together for loops, uh, different counts of iteration, branches, and then you can play your program, and it it uh, plays it by using sounds. So um, this was actually invented by a researcher at Microsoft who uh, has a blind son, and she was frustrated because in school they were using uh, Blockly or Scratch, which are graphical sort of introductory languages uh, where students can just move a, a drag pieces around on a screen to build up uh, applications that they can run. So this was meant to be the tactile equivalent of things like Scratch. And how's that working out? How's it been received? Oh, real well. And that's another one where uh, Humanware is doing an international distribution for us. So people are... uh, Keen, as you would say, to uh, get it. I, I learned that that has a different <laughs> meaning in the United States. It's one I hadn't picked up on until quite recently. So, yeah. yeah. 
So uh, it's being rece- received real well. In fact, we're trying to work on a whole curriculum now of ways to introduce more technical material, more technical skills to uh, younger students, um, like programming and uh, electronics and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. Participation in those STEM subjects is something that has been vexing the minds of many people because it does seem to be lower than it ought to be in blind kids in general. Absolutely. That's one of the biggest uh, challenges, especially in, you know, now that we're becoming a technological society and and in many ways, thank goodness we are, we'd all be a lot more bored during COVID-19 if we didn't have the internet. (laughs) Why why do you think it is though? What's, what's preventing kids from participating in STEM subjects to the degree that we would like? I think an inaccessibility is a big part of it. Um, you know, there's no way a blind student can use those introductory languages like that. Um, I think a lot of it is access to graphical material. You know, it's hard for a student to get an appreciation of, uh, what's, it, what's showing up in a microscope view or through a telescope. Um, so. You know, I think we're going to have to take an approach where we look at a, a lot of different ways to address specific problems uh, in these areas. And we've done a lot of that at APH in terms of, uh, you know, creating physical models. Um, now, you know, uh, we're talking about doing a, a vetting of 3D objects that people can print on their own uh, 3D printers. Um, so there's a multitude of different things that we're looking at to try to alleviate some of those uh, discrepancies in, in the way young students learn. I haven't had much of a look at the SWIFT tutorials that Apple has done, particularly on iPad OS, I believe. Have you had a play with that, and do you have a view on how well that works? I think they did a good job. It's probably not something that uh, you're going to introduce to a uh, you know a first or a second grader like what they're doing in the in the schools now. You know, it, it takes a certain amount of skill. You've got to know how to use voiceover properly uh, for the first thing. And you know, and we all hope that blind students, uh, blind children, are going to get introduced to these kind of devices earlier and earlier and. You know, we're making a big push even to uh, try to get people to use refreshable Braille displays at younger and younger ages. In fact, we just uh, introduced um, an app of a week or two ago called Braille Buzz that is a uh, simulation of a, a product that we've been selling, a hardware product called Braille Buzz that's um, – Really quite amazing that we're able to get this out for less than a hundred dollars. This hardware product that is basically kind of reminds you of uh, one of the Fisher Price toys from, <laughs> from back in the day. It's got braille, you know, all the braille letters on it. You press them and get a sound. It's got a little braille keyboard on it. So we're, we're sort of trying to make this app be a student's first introduction to a, a Braille display where it's got some engaging sounds and uh, teaching them a little bit about which letters are popping up on the display and so forth. So, like I say, a multitude of approaches to try to uh, address the situation. Another interesting thing we're doing now is uh, moving a lot towards web-based applications. Um, I don't know 
how much of a crossword puzzle fan you are, but uh, here, oh gosh, it's probably been almost a year ago, we've released a uh, a crossword web app where you can actually load in puzzles from newspapers and work them accessibly, simulating the real experience of the grid. And, you know, I know there's a lot of other crossword apps that sort of try to walk you through, oh, this is what's here, but this one actually lets you move through the grid and see what letters are in the spaces and, and fill them in and type them in. We've, uh, we've actually got an interface to the New York Times so that you can uh, download the daily puzzles from there or, or look through their free ones. So that's, uh, that's worth looking at. And, uh, you can, you can see that just by going to, uh, crossword.aphtech.org. Do they have to be in a particular format? Uh, PUZ format. Yeah. Right. I think it also, it also takes, uh, XWC. <laughs> that's so, really quite cool. Which, I'll have to have a play with that. It, it is very cool. We've also just released uh, an online version of our uh, typing tutor. So, you know, for years we've had the Windows one that uh, it's been hundreds of kids' introduction to typing. Uh, now, you know, it works just as well on a Chromebook or a Mac. Uh, it's all interactive, um, and you can get to that one by going to typer.aphtech.org. Mm, that's the way of the future, isn't it? It is. Those are just a few of the uh, the things we got going on. We've got, uh, you know, APH is a bustling place. There's uh, dozens of projects going going on at a time over there. It's a, been an amazing place to work at. I've, I've been there 35 years, <laughs> on and off. Do you still do the Bookport Plus, or has that project run its course? It uh, it's over. Yeah, can't uh, can't get the hardware anymore. And I know people are passionate about, you know, like you've mentioned, you're surprised how many people still use the Victor Reader Stream to download mm. your podcast. But uh, I I sort of feel what people are talking about. I, uh, you know, I use my um, iPhone to read NLS and uh, and uh, Bookshare books and Audible and everything now, but. You know, at night when I'm uh, laying there in bed, I've I've got that Bookport Plus with the regular old earbud because, uh, you know, it's got an automatic sleep timer. It's easier to get back to where you were when you fell asleep la- after you fell asleep from last time. So, you know, I I, I see the appeal of them. Uh, I'll be sad to see the last of them go away, but uh, we know that time must go on. Yeah, but I guess, I mean, the stream seems to be doing very well, certainly based on my numbers uh, when I look at what people are listening with, the stream still is doing very well. What about the note-taker market? So really education, and this comes back to the point you were making just a bit ago, education is propping up the note-taker. It's gone right down the market uh, for for adults, although some adults still really do like their blindness note-taker. Where are we at in your assessment with giving a kid an iPad, say, and a Braille display like the Mantis and expecting them to be able to succeed in the school system? You know, and that's another one of those things that's going to be different for individual students. Um, there's no denying that the simplicity of a note taker and the reliability, not having to worry about a connection, even though Bluetooth is rock solid these days 
and you, and you don't lose connections like you did in the early days. There's still a learning curve for learning each application. You've got so much more choice when you're uh, pairing up devices like that. You know, when you've got a note taker, you learn one set of rules and you can pretty much get around on the device. So I see the simplicity. I, I see why some people would take that route. It's just that, as you have pointed out, you're, uh, you're going to go obsolete a lot quicker. It may work for, you know, a few years. It may work for five or 10 years even. But in the meantime, the rest of the world is advancing on with uh, more features, more capabilities. You know, more things you can do. It's just that you have that, uh, as you well know, that little added complexity of getting the things paired up and mm. possibility of uh, something going wrong there. Although, like I say, it's very rare these days. Yeah, this is one of the great dilemmas when I was looking after blindness products at HumanWare and doing the Braille Notes Empower and, and products like that, is that in essence – those note-taker products were a victim of their own success because it gave blind people so much confidence to try things like browsing the <laughs> web. And, and and then what, of course, happened was people wanted, understandably, more and more, and they wanted the technology to keep up. And when you've just got a small number of software engineers because you can't afford to employ any more in a small market, it is impossible to keep up in a proprietary system with market trends. You cannot keep up with Google. <laughs> yeah. No way. Yeah. And so that takes us back full circle. And, and hence, that's the approach that you've taken with the Mantis, which I am very excited to get my hands on. So I am looking forward to finding out when HumanWare will be distributing that internationally. Uh, but it's always good to catch up. Um, people have so much respect for all you've contributed to blind people over the years. So it's always good to hear what you're up to. And yeah, thank you. And you know what? And I have enjoyed every second of it. I, I tell people I've never worked a day in my life. It's all been, <laughs> it's all been fun. Well, I mean, there was a couple of days there where I was grumbling <laughs> a little bit, but <laughs> if you can love what you do, it just makes all the difference, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. And, and knowing that you've just done a little bit to make the world a, a better, more accessible place. It, uh, it's a nice feeling to be in a position to do those things. It's an honor. It really is. It puts a warm spot in your heart. Well, do keep contributing to the podcast. I have enjoyed getting your contributions, and uh, so I'm sure we will keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. Larry Scootcon, and since we recorded that interview two or three weeks back, because we are a bit backlogged at Mosin at Large, we learned from APH that the 31st of August – was Larry's last day in the role at APH. Larry, as he said in the interview, has contributed on and off to APH, and the bit where he was off, he was working on ASAP, the Automatic Screen Access Program for DOS, and then ASOR, the Automatic Screen Access for Windows. Since Larry's retirement was announced, there has been an outpouring of thanks and praise for all that Larry has given the community, and justifiably so. We certainly look forward to his ongoing contributions to Mosin at Large, but what a contribution he has made to all of us. Thank you, Larry. In the next episode of Mosin at Large, we've got something pretty special for you. We're going to be talking about audiobooks, specifically about a service called Libro.fm. Corey Doctorow in a blog post alerted me to this a few weeks ago, and I've been checking this out 
And we're going to talk to a couple of people from Libro FM because this service gives you a very wide selection of audiobooks, but without any hassle of digital rights management. And we'll take the opportunity to talk about what makes a good audiobook reading in your view and much more besides. So we'll see you over the weekend. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.